From State Impact Pennsylvania, this is Energy Explained, a podcast where we go behind the stories to explain Pennsylvania's energy economy. I'm Reed Frazier. Pennsylvania has had an active energy industry for more than two centuries. Coal and steel supported the Commonwealth's economy, but polluted our streams, our air, and our land. In response to this long history, in the 1970s, Pennsylvania became one of the first governments in the world to guarantee environmental rights to all its citizens. But those rights were very seldom recognized. That is, until fracking came to town. Today, we're going to explore Pennsylvania's Environmental Rights Amendment with Marie Cusick, a state impact reporter whose new documentary on the subject will air on public television stations beginning October 25th. It's called Generations Yet to Come, Environmental Rights in Pennsylvania. Marie, welcome. Thanks for having me, Reed. So, Marie, I want you to just give us some background. What is the Environmental Rights Amendment and where did it come from? The Environmental Rights Amendment was amended into the state constitution in 1971, as you mentioned, because Pennsylvania has this long history of exploiting its natural resources. That's led to a lot of economic growth, but it's also led to a lot of pollution. So it was really in the midst of the 1970s era of environmental activism that the state constitution was changed. And this very powerful statement was added. It's um, Article 1, Section 27, and it, it declares that people have a right to clean water, pure air, um, and this is the public natural resources of the state are for the benefit of all people, including generations yet to come. The people have a right to clean air, pure water, and to the preservation of the natural, scenic, historic, and aesthetic values of the environment. And that the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is to act as a trustee of these resources. So in the documentary, I ended up speaking to the amendment's author, who's um, Franklin Curry. He's now 82. He was a young man when this passed. And he said he really wanted to make the state government the trustee of the resources and the guardian of our environment because, as he feels, they were just really a party to all of this exploitation over the decades. For a hundred years after the Civil War, the state government of Pennsylvania was pretty much controlled by the railroad industry, the steel industry, and the coal industry. They were accomplices to this. Yeah, tell us a little bit about Franklin Curry. He was an interesting guy. He, and where did he grow up, and how did that sort of shape his views on this kind of environmental degradation? Yeah, Franklin Curry is a really fascinating man. He grew up in Sunbury in um, the anthracite coal region of Pennsylvania. And he said it was it was really just the powerful visuals that stuck with him as a child. He would go to Shenandoah to visit his grandparents. So we went up there a lot of weekends. And I was just a kid. And I didn't think much of law, but I did notice that their house was only 100 yards from a large coal bank, a huge coal bank. And in front of them was a stream that ran black as the ace of spades. I never quite get over that. So these visual images um, and this visceral connection to the destruction of coal mining stuck with him. And then he, as he grew up, he went on to get a law degree 
uh, from the University of Pennsylvania. He ran for the state house at age 29 in this big upset. And his whole campaign was about clean streams and clean politics. Um, and at the time, it was it was this sort of national wave of, of environmental um, activism was sort of happening across the country. So he really kind of rode on that wave at the time. Yeah, this is when the Environmental Protection Agency was just coming into being. The first Earth Day was right around that time. So this was like a big time for you know, this awakening on in terms of environmental protection. Yeah, and he said as a student of history, he knew that political tides rise and fall. And he knew that this momentum of environmental protectionism wasn't going to last forever. So that's why he said he really wanted to get a constitutional amendment in Pennsylvania because, you know, you can pass a law and then, you know, another legislature can come along and pass other laws and, and the laws can easily be changed or undone. But he felt like firmly planting these rights in the state constitution was something uh, quite different. And it's not easy to pass a constitutional amendment in Pennsylvania. What did they have to do? No, it it had to go through multiple legislative sessions, and then it, it went on the ballots um, to the citizens. And uh, he, he likes to joke that at, at the same time, um, there was a constitutional amendment uh, guaranteeing women equal rights. And he said that only passed by a two-to-one margin, <laughs> and um, his environmental rights amendment passed by a four-to-one margin. It was not nothing to get this into the Constitution, but it was quite quite popular and supported by the legislature, and it was supported by the citizens of Pennsylvania quite strongly. So it's this big victory for environmental protection in Pennsylvania. But then what happens? Yeah, well, as Franklin Curry says in the documentary, the Constitution is only as good as the people who will support it. So what happened was... The courts had never really interpreted it because it was so new. And some of the early challenges where people were trying to use the environmental rights amendment to sort of get things they wanted, um, the courts just, um, they didn't really go along with it. And they thought, well, this this amendment is powerfully worded, but it, it just has to be anti-development. Um, but So one of the first cases where the amendment was tested was just a few years after it passed in 1973. Uh, there was a private developer on private land next to the Gettysburg National Battlefield who wanted to build this big observation tower. And um, the state attorney general um, went after it and, and sued the developer, saying that this was an uh, kind of like an eyesore that would ruin the battlefield. And um, the court sided with the uh, developer, though. Um, and the challenge had been that this sort of violates the scenic and aesthetic nature of the battlefield and thus violates the Environmental Rights Amendment. But the court said, no, um, it doesn't. <laughs> and they, they, uh, the tower was actually up there for many years, and it was quite controversial. But the early cases just it didn't really go towards a strong interpretation of the amendment. So it sounds like the courts just weren't ready to sort of like follow the letter of the law as it was written in this constitution. Well, it's not quite that simple. It's more that if you are going to try to, let's say, revitalize or or use a constitutional amendment the way some of these folks were, you need to make sure you're picking the right case to bring it. So the other case that um, kind of muted the amendment, I'd say, was Payne versus Kassab. And that's where there was a street widening project that would like slightly cut into a public park in Wilkes-Barre. And so some citizens challenged the street widening project and said, well, you know, you're cutting into this park and that violates our environmental rights. And 
And again, the court said, no, um, you know, it's going from one public use to another public use. Um, and so they developed what's what's known as the Payne versus Kassab test, and it's this three-part balancing test um, where under the judicial review around the amendment, it essentially says that, you know, was was there compliance with all regulations and, and was there an attempt to mitigate harm? According to the legal scholars I talked to, that really hampered the amendment for years to come. I see. So uh, the, as long as you were following all statutes and sort of weren't doing undue harm to the environment, you know, the Environmental Rights Amendment didn't really apply to whatever project was under review. Yeah, that three-part balancing test just didn't have a lot of relationship to the text and the plain language of the amendment. So, you know, it, it certainly makes sense on one hand, um, but on the other hand, to some extent, it ignores the language in the amendment. We're going to jump ahead to 2013, and the amendment becomes you know, very relevant for a pretty prominent case. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, this was a case that was about natural gas drilling, which there had been this huge surge of um, natural gas development in Pennsylvania's Marcellus Shale. So the legislature had passed a new law. It was called Act 13 that did all kinds of things to update Pennsylvania's oil and gas law. And among the changes the legislature made was this very controversial provision that basically eliminated zoning requirements for oil and gas companies. So um, we all know zoning, you can do certain things in certain areas and you can't do other things in other areas. But this basically said that oil and gas wells could be placed almost anywhere in the state, regardless of the zoning. Um, so a group of citizens um, an environmental group and some local governments challenged several sections of the law, including that one. And one of the things they cited was, you know, the, this violates Pennsylvania's Environmental Rights Amendment. And Pretty much everybody involved in the case was very surprised when the court agreed with that argument and said, yes, it does violate the Environmental Rights Amendment. And it was the first time the opinion came in late 2013 where a court had used the Environmental Rights Amendment to actually nullify parts of a state law. So some of those controversial provisions were actually struck down. And you spoke with the former Supreme Court Judge Ron Castile who was the author of that decision, and he was pretty adamant about why he thought that provision of the law was unconstitutional. And that bill, that Act 13 bill, was a total capitulation to the oil and gas industry. Yeah, he said he thought that the oil and gas industry just wrote the bill and handed it to the legislature. Um, And he said zoning really matters. You know, if you want to build a garage or something in your backyard, you need to uh, go through and and look at the zoning and you can't just do whatever you want, wherever you want. What this did is it overturned all of those zoning laws. But if you wanted one of these gas wells, it allowed them to be placed almost anywhere in essence. So he said he was really concerned about the way the law was written in that it essentially just eliminated zoning for the oil and gas industry. And he said, you know, this amendment had been on the books for 40 years, but nobody had really closely looked at it um, and nobody had really interpreted it. And if you think, think about the other kinds of rights that we're used to as Americans, like our First Amendment rights to free speech, for example, I mean, we're still hashing out what that means centuries later. But this was kind of put on the books in the 70s and just 
not really closely paid attention to. This decision represented a big victory for environmental groups and municipalities that wanted to restrict uh, fracking in their their districts through zoning. But in your reporting, what has been the fallout from this decision? Has it put a damper on drilling in certain areas? Or is this just kind of uh, something that the gas industry has figured out a way to work around? I don't know that it's really put a damper on drilling. I think everyone, you know, beyond the gas industry, other folks and other people are still trying to figure out what the amendment means. So this is all still very dynamic and developing. But no, I wouldn't say it really put a damper on development because um, the one thing to know is that actually a lot of the very rural areas where Marcellus development is taking place never had zoning to begin with. (laughs) And then also whether they're, you know, drilling a lot or pulling back is sort of more dependent on the price of the resource and not so much on what a particular local government might do. Have you seen whether this has been culturally or politically accepted, this environmental rights amendment decision in Pennsylvania? I actually don't think a lot of people know about the environmental rights amendment, as I've been reporting and learning about it myself. Um, And I talk to folks, you know, we are very familiar with the federal constitution and our Bill of Rights in particular, the First Amendment, right to free speech, freedom of religion, Second Amendment, we talk about a lot, uh, the right to bear arms. Um, I don't think that people are, of course, as familiar with what their state constitution says. And what's so interesting about this amendment is that Pennsylvania really led the world in these kind of rights. And since the 1970s, about three quarters of the world's countries have added some kind of uh, mention of environmental quality in their national constitution. So the, the United States is actually in the minority of countries globally that does not mention the environment in its federal constitution. So you talk to attorneys uh, for the oil and gas industry who say there's inevitably going to be some sort of conflict between, you know, the right to clean air and pure water and property rights. What's their argument and and how do they see this uh, shaking out in the courts? You know, I think everyone sees this as a very dynamic area of law that's, that's still unfolding and it could potentially, you know, go up to federal court. And um, one of the attorneys I talked to uh, who represents oil and gas companies said this amendment could be pushed too far and it, it really could end up clashing with private property rights and create an issue with the federal constitution. So the feeling is if you're a business and you're trying to do something, whatever it is, whether it's gas development or something else, and you've really dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's and you're following all the regulations, um, and then sun- suddenly somebody says, well, there's this you know extra level of um, protection that you have to give to people and, and people have a right to clean air and pure water. What does that actually mean? Um, does that mean, you know, you can't put up any facility that pollutes? Because, you know, as humans, <laughs> a lot of the things we do um, when we're developing um, create environmental disruption for people and for nature. So I think everyone's just still trying to figure out what does this mean? Marie, thanks so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Marie Cusick is a state impact reporter. 
She produced Generations Yet to Come, Environmental Rights in Pennsylvania. Check your local PBS station for airtimes or online at State Impact Pennsylvania. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode of Energy Explained, where we'll be looking into how to cover scientific research, especially on energy. State Impact is a public radio collaboration from WHYY, WITF, WESA, and the Allegheny Front, covering Pennsylvania's energy economy. If you have an energy or environment question you'd like answered, you can ask it online. Just go to our Ask Us page on the State Impact website. I'm Reed Frazier. Our producer is Andy Cubis. Scott Blanchard is State Impact's editor. Thanks for listening to Energy Explained.